From war across the globe to regulating speech to printing trillions of dollars, the American regime accepts no limits on its power. As Ludwig von Mises understood, the state will take as much power as the people will let it. And in recent years, the American regime has clearly concluded it can get away with unilaterally adopting vast new powers. Join Michael Rechtenwald, Ted Galen Carpenter, Jonathan Newman, and more for a Mises Institute event in Nashville, Tennessee on September 23rd, dedicated to this siege of power and one of Ron Paul's favorite lines, truth is treason in the empire of lies. Tickets begin at $95. Get yours at Mises.org Nashville 23. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash Nashville 23. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Ryan, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So I... It caught my eye your recent article on the M2 money supply, and so I know lots of people are saying, geez, it's been a while since I've checked on M2. And so what did you find, Ryan? Yeah, well, every month I try to go in and I compare M2 to Rothbard's Salerno money supply measure and just really just keep tabs on what's moving there, and uh, it's it's down, which is a very rare uh, occurrence. Certainly, I've been watching it for the last 10 years, uh, militantly and more casually for the last 20. And you basically never saw it go down. Um, it would even out sometimes uh, a month to month measure on M2, uh, the M2 money supply. And eh, but pretty much never any sort of sustained period uh, where it went down. But we have now seen uh, since about, looks like, oh, er, since about mid 2020, looking at the, the chart here that it started to actually decline, um, by trillions of dollars over a sustained period since that time. And that's that's pretty darn unusual. And then the the decline is even greater if you look at uh, the so-called Austrian measure of the money supply, which is a little bit different. We look at that later. Um, but just looking at the money supply in general, the most popular of which is M two and the most broadly used, yeah, it's it's a fall. We can look at it uh, year over year change, and we can see. That let's look at what the the most recent change is. It was down in April by four point six percent, and that is the largest decline we've seen in decades. And, and when you say these numbers you're quoting are year over year changes, that is correct. Year over year, not seasonally adjusted. Uh, just I'm comparing April of twenty three to April of twenty two. And so, yeah, so, so twelve month changes, folks. For if if that if the phrase year over year means nothing to you. <laughs> so generally, if you're looking at a graph that we would put on Mises.org fairly regularly when we're looking at money supply, it's going to be a year over year change, and that's the one, two, three, four, five. That's the fifth month in a row where 
it's been down year over year. And the sixth month in a row, uh, using the more nuanced Austrian money supply, I mean, they tend to track together. And so you are looking then at a decline that uh, is really decades in the making because you just don't see anything uh, like that until you're going back uh, really to the 1990s when you get close to zero, um, but it doesn't even really slip down below zero. It's, so while you can get significant slowing in the money supply at a m- many different junctures historically over the last 30, 40 years, you rarely see any sort of actual fall. Um, the closest it came was about 93 um, and in the early 90s there where you had a significant recessionary period. You had some deindustrialization. Uh, but ever since then, it's been solidly positive. And then, of course, you you had year-over-year changes of positive over 25% uh, in 2021 and 2020, um, over 20% month after month for a long, sustained period there. And it has since collapsed. Um, now, of course, some people say, well, the money supply went up so much during that period that even just having a few months in a row of declines – uh, over that period just really isn't anything significant. And I would say that it's it's fallen enough that I would call it significant, certainly not back on the old trend. Now, it had peaked up, the total M2 money supply had peaked up at over uh, $21 trillion, um, and has since fallen to, it looks like, $20.8 trillion. We say, oh, what? What's about $500 billion? Well, when it comes to uh, the, <laughs> the, the business cycle, when it comes to money supply dynamics, a fall of that sort is significant. It's, uh, I wouldn't call it huge, uh, percentage-wise, of course, because in order just to get back to the old trend that already existed, say, around that had existed from about 2000 to 2010, you're going to have to fall another $5 trillion or so. But even if you did that, but if you did manage to do that, that would essentially erase the last three years of crazy monetary policy in terms of money supply. Of course, it wouldn't erase the damage done, um, but it would return you then back to a more recognizable money supply uh, from pre-COVID days. So we've st- still definitely got... A ways to go, and that's still even true with uh, the Austrian money supply, which had maxed out at about twenty-one point seven trillion, and has now fallen down to nineteen trillion. So you're down you know, more than a trillion dollars, uh, but still, you again, you'd have to see a drop of about four or five trillion just to get back to uh, a more recognizable trend. So yeah, we've seen huge increases. But we've also seen what are historically extremely rare year-over-year declines in the money supply. And so that is something that's fairly remarkable. And I just want to stress, because sometimes you know people might be assuming and filling in the gaps, you're not referring to a slowdown in the growth. You're saying literally the level of M2 is lower now than it was 12 months ago. That's correct. If, if it was just a slowdown from, say, 3% to 1% increase year-over-year, I would say that and make that very clear. But mm-hmm. that's what's so rare about it is that it's actually negative. It's negative growth so that the, the, the money supply has actually declined as measured by M2 or the, the Austrian measure we use. Right. And again, just to under, I'm just repeating to make sure, Ryan, folks get the significance of this. Um, the, so if you look at it, sure, if you look at the, 
the so-called true money supply figure that Rothbard and Salerno uh, came up with. And folks, we'll explain some of this in, in a minute, like what the distinctions are between the various measures. But just so you get the headline here, um, that in the so that is significantly negative uh, in terms of percentage drop year over year. It has been negative before, even though it is rare. Um, just in this chart, Ryan, you've got going back uh, into the 80s, I believe. It's happened twice before. Um, so still rare. But like as you say, if, if you happen to choose M2 as your measure, then that as far back as this chart go doesn't go negative. Now, I know it was negative sharply in the early 1930s. Do you, do you know – I don't want to put – I don't want to say something that's – do we know? Is that the only – do we have to go back to the 30s to see M2 dropping like this? I believe we do. Um, I did try and find – it's hard to find any sort of just graph that shows it. Right. So, so there have been some papers that came out of the Fed um, and some similar sorts of, uh, sorts of sources that do look at um, where there are periods of actual falling money supply. And I was able to confirm for sure you've got to go back to the 60s um, before you even get close to something that's negative. Um, but it could very well be that you have to go back to the 30s. And I did, uh, as far as I could tell, it looks like you definitely would have to go back to the 30s, at least based on some comments Rothbard makes in America's Great Depression, that you're going to have to go back to the Depression to see any significant negative declines uh, there as well. So we are probably talking about like 80 years um, Mm -hmm. where you haven't seen declines this large. As you note, right, there have been a couple periods where it got zero or slightly dipped below zero, and that was more common with uh, the true money supply, the Austrian money supply, than with M2. But uh, you could say, yeah, that's that's happened before, and we can find a couple places. But in order to look at something that's negative 4% in terms of M2 year-over-year change, or in the case of the Austrian uh, money supply negative twelve percent, which is just really amazing. You're going to have to go back at least fifty years and probably eighty or more years. Now, let me just spend a minute here, Ryan, talking about for folks who don't like w- w- what are these different measures? What's the different? So it has to do, folks, with you. Know, you can come up in words with what do you mean by the quantity of money and or you know people colloquially the money supply. The reason I, I even say that, folks, is because like if we talk about what's the supply of apples, normally economists think of like a curve to say, oh, at various possible prices of apples, how many would be brought to market? And yet when we, typically when we say the money supply, we mean right now how, much, how many dollars are there in various ways of measuring it, right? We just, we, as, whereas money – where at the supply of apples ten, doesn't necessarily make you think like how many apples exist right at this moment. All right, that would be like the quantity of apples. So anyway, but typically when we talk about the supply of money, what we mean is how much money is there right now? What's the stock of money? And there's different ways of defining it because certain things you, you might say, oh, yeah, that's part of it or not. So, for example, the, what's called the monetary base or base money or sometimes M0 would be uh, so-called high-powered money. Like actu- So if we're talking about the United States actual currency, you know, $100 bills, green pieces of paper with dead presidents, pictures on them. Um, and commercial banks checking account deposits with the Fed, right? Legally speaking, those are all interchangeable. That's the the legal tender money. And then you can – so that's that's one number. That's a small, you know, relatively small. Then you could say what's M1, right? So going from like M0 to M1. And that 
includes things like checking account balances at commercial banks. And so given the, the nature of fractional reserve banking, those aren't the same. So if you take a $100 bill and put it on deposit at a bank, then your checking account balance goes up by 100 And then let's say they lend 90 to somebody else. And now that person you know, keeps it on deposit there. So now that person's checking account balance went up by 90 so our checking account balances just went up 190, whereas the stock of you know $100 bills just went down by 100. So it's there's a sense in which, you know, $90 got created just by the banking system. All right, so that's you can see it and then you, oh well, what if we include savings accounts or time deposits? What if we include money market mutual funds? Da, 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 and you start you know so M0, M1, M2, you include things that they're still very liquid claims on dollars at par, but if they're not immediately available, that like the way short-term time deposits aren't, then you know they they fall into broader and broader categories. So that's the reason for these distinctions. Murray Rothbard and Joe Salerno came up with what they said. Okay, from an Austrian perspective, given what we think of as the definition of money, going back to Mises' 1912 theory of money and credit, we would include these types of things in that that figure and exclude these types. As Ryan says, it's close to M2. It's not exactly right. I'm just looking at your um, your article here. You say, the Mises Institute now offers regular updates on this metric, meaning what's called the true money supplier, the, the Rothbard-Salerno measure. Uh, this measure differs from M2 and that it includes treasury deposits at the Fed and excludes short-time deposits in retail money funds. Okay, so just to give an idea of some of the distinctions that uh, Rothbard and Salerno, they were driven by the theory in the, Aust- you know, in the Austrian framework of what counts as money. And so they you know, quibbled about, well, we shouldn't include this thing or we should. So that's why these things differ somewhat in their trajectory over time. But as Ryan is saying, the big picture is, is still the same right now when we're talking about the evolution of this over the last you know, five years. Yeah, the the one thing I would say about the uh, Austrian money supply, true money supply, is that it's a little bit more sensitive in that you see uh, bigger changes with business cycles and that I think it's a little bit easier to see when there's uh, changes in the state of the economy that could affect the money supply. And I think it's maybe has a little bit more obvious predictive power in terms of um, shifts upward and downward, whereas changes in M2 – um, it just often you can have long periods where it just doesn't change uh, as much at all, and it doesn't really give you a hint that maybe you're entering uh, in a period of, of instability as soon as maybe uh, the Rothbard method might tell you. But of course, when you're when you're in such a weird situation like we are now, where you have this huge run up and then this big decline and everything, uh, there's not really much of a necessary difference there at all. Yeah, and just to give folks some more insight, um, I recently – was it last year? I'm, it was either last year or the year before. The time is flying now. Um, gave a talk. What I had done is I went back and tried to figure out uh, – I don't know if you, if, you, if you were this, Ryan. I went to and I wanted to answer the question, okay, what happened? Why was it – and you know, I was guilty of this myself. After 2008, the Fed comes in with all these various QE programs – Meanwhile, you know, the Obama administration is doing lots of things that I would have thought would reduce productivity, let's say. So like the, the, the real output of goods and services, I would have thought would have had a squeeze on it. Meanwhile, the Fed's pumping in all this money. So I thought we were going to see consumer prices rising at above normal rates. And that didn't happen, at least according to the government's official measures. Right. 
And so at the time, all the Keynesian types, Paul Krugman guy, they're running victory laps like, aha, you idiots. You just go, oh, increase money. Prices go up. And no, the real world is more complicated than your simplistic models, morons. And then when uh, the Fed, again, during, when 2020 comes along and the Fed pumps in all this money and the government runs huge budget deficits, giving stimulus checks and so forth, uh, paying people to stay home. A lot of right-wingers were worried about price inflation, and the Keynesians said, oh, don't worry, don't worry. And then you know, CPI's growth was rising, and Krugman's on record. He kept saying, oh, no, okay, we finally we turned the corner, and he just kept being wrong, right? So they kind of made the mistake in the opposite way, and you know, it does, but it's okay because it doesn't count when they, when they screw up. It's, their theories still are true in their mind. But in any event, I wanted to figure out like, why is it – because people at the time were saying you know, in 2021 and 22. Gee, the Fed bumps in a bunch of money. Who would have thought prices would rise? You idiot Keynesian. But I, I wanted to be intellectually honest. And say, well, but guys, hang on though. That that didn't happen in 2010, or it wasn't as obvious. You know the story. So I went back, and part of what I ended up seeing a distinction was that M1 went rose rapidly in like 2009 and maybe 2010. I haven't looked at the figures recently, but M2 it, it did go up like faster than norm than normal, but it wasn't blowing it out of the water like if you just looked at a chart of m2 growth you would not have known something crazy happened in the end of 2008 2009 whereas if you looked at m1 it really did spike right so it was paling in comparison to what would come later in 2020 but at the time that was really scary looking and so um and by the way that also showed when people were just saying oh it's because the fed started paying interest on reserves all that money was bottled up in the system the public that wasn't entirely correct so yeah that was an issue but M1 includes checking account balances. So, no, the public was bulking up on their money sitting in checking accounts after the 2008 crisis. But M2 didn't rise as much. And so I was looking at the components to see, well, you know, what's – because M2 includes M1. So what's going on? And some of it was flows out of money market mutual funds and is part of what M2 is. And so because that happened, that partially offset the huge increase in checking account balances – and so in retrospect, so I didn't get it right in real time, but in retrospect, I think partly what happened there was the public was scared because, right, like the uh, money market fund broke the buck in, in the September of 2008, you know, the Lehman collapse and all that stuff. And so I think people panicked and they rushed to what they thought was really safe assets like money literally in the bank, especially because FDIC raised the uh, insurance level from 100000 to 250000 right in that period. Whereas they were pulling their money out of what used to be considered pretty liquid, safe things like money market mutual funds. And so um, I think – so if you just looked at M1, you would have thought, wow, money in the hands of the public is going through the roof. I bet prices are going to start skyrocketing. But if instead you realized, oh, wait a minute, but M2 is being you know, is, is being offset. Like M2 is not going through the roof. It's just m- money's getting moved from different components of M2 – that aren't you know that are making M1 go up, um, then you would realize no, it's not so much that the average household now is sitting on higher cash balances per se. It's just they're rearranging the composition of their broader measure of money being held to put it into things that they consider to be safer and more liquid. And so from that point of view, yeah, of course you didn't see CPI spike because the reason they're doing it is they're hunkering down. They're you know they're not going to go out and just start spending money like crazy. They're trying to gain you know the bulk up on their cash. So that's just one particular example to to show like the differences in these measures and how, you know, if one thing's going up, but the other one's not, you might be able to then try to tease out and, and, and give you better guidance. So 
all that's to say, Ryan, for this, partly why I wanted to have you on and let our listeners know about this, these trends is, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it might not be the best time right now for Austrian hard money types to be running around and saying, oh my God, the Fed's debasing the dollar and hyperinflation's you know just around the corner. Yeah, because what you're seeing now is a, a trend that could be very disinflationary is this decline in money supply. And as you know, there's just so many factors. I mean, I remember when I started doing these articles on money supply, that you, you'd get a lot of comments in social media and stuff about people interpreted the, the article. They would, of course, just read the headline and stuff, and they would interpret – my comment about the money supply to be my comment about inflation. They mm -hmm. think that we believe in some sort of like one-to-one -one inflation money supply connection. Then by inflation, I mean price inflation in this case. So they thought that if we were saying, oh, the money supply increased, let's just say 5%, well, I must have meant also that I think prices are going to increase 5%. Of course, we don't believe that at all as Austrians. We, we recognize there's a lot of complexity there. And that those, those two things are just simply not how it works. They're not connected, those two things, in that way. There could be long time lags. There could be things that happen to this money where it's no longer even fits the definition of money for a time period. Uh, just like you were just saying, it could have uh, gone out of uh, – it could have ended up in small time deposits or retail money funds. Uh, it could have gone any number of places that then you would have then seen the money supply – decline by this measure, and you would have then understood, oh, there's disinflationary stuff going on now, and so we shouldn't expect hyperinflation. So yeah, there's a variety of factors going on here. And uh, just going back to the example of what happened after 2009 and was a factor in the lack of mega inflation back then, I think a lot of people forget about how iffy the economy was between 2009 and 2012, even maybe even to 2013, if you looked at home prices, you looked at employment growth, uh, there were a couple uh, periods there where the Fed seemed real panicky, actually, uh, in terms of its own reading of the economy. So that you had periods go by, you had a period of years go by after 2009 where people just simply were not sure that the economy was about to zoom upward or anything like that. And if you looked at like median household income, uh, you would see that a lot of uh, earnings growth just – it went nowhere during a long period there between really about 2007 and 2014 even. There's a lot more weakness there during that quote-unquote expansion than than people just typically remember and so those are the sorts of things you have to keep in mind when you're trying to look at the money supply and guess, okay, well, what were the major factors here? There was a lot of disinflationary stuff going on in that period in terms of caution and refusal to just blow money as people were willing to blow their money in 2020 and 2021. That was a very different sort of atmosphere then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and like I say, it just I know – and I'm not – I'm saying this uh, – I'm saying this with love that I know – there are some very cynical types that they're just perma bears and oh yeah, the the economy is going to st stall next Tuesday and we're going to have hyperinflation and so I just so to to not you know fall into that trap you got to look at the numbers and it's true I do think the long run prospects for the U.S. dollar are bleak because I don't trust the Federal Reserve but they really have been tightening by any conventional meaning of that term. Uh, recently, not not merely having interest rates rise, but as we say, even like by measures of M two, 
falling. So they're not, not just slowing the rate of growth, but literally M2 has come down arguably, as far as Ryan and I know, can figure out, not since the early 1930s have we seen M2 declines of this magnitude. Um, so having said that, so Ryan, what does that mean uh, you, and you talk about this in your article. Are you are you thinking? And again, not to put you on the spot, but would one suppose there's going to be a recession given all this? Well, yes, I think there's a recession. The question is: Is it going to be stagflation? Is there going to be high inflation mixed with uh, job losses? Boy, is that impossible to for me to predict at this time? I just I don't know. I don't know if. Deflationary pressures of an economic slowdown will, will overwhelm inflationary pressures. I, I hope that if there's a slowdown, that price inflation goes away um, because that's just awful if, if you're going to have both job losses and price inflation going on at the same time. And so there's just lots of debate over whether that will happen or not. I think there will just be a recession based on a variety of other factors. Really, the the only real stat that we can point to that says, oh, yeah, everything's fine, everything looks great, is the payroll jobs data. And that's Mm -hmm. what the Fed keeps pointing to over and over again. They, of course, they ignore the household survey jobs data, which is a different survey and has much more mediocre um, news for us in terms of job growth. And then you can look at various manufacturing surveys out of the Fed itself. You can look at temp job production, which is very, very low. You can look at um, wage, uh, weekly average wages uh, and home prices in many markets. You can look to all of that, and none of that is particularly good news. And then more traditionally as well, you can, of course, look at the yield curve uh, which is in deep, deep territory compared to where it's been at any point in at least 45 years from what I can see. And that's been traditionally a rock-solid indicator of a recession, and that's now been the case for months that it's been in negative territory. And there's generally a, a significant lag there, right? It goes negative, and then maybe a year goes by. And so it was last year that we saw it go negative, and... So it would be on schedule, really, to have a recession later this year. And even the Fed is now starting to admit that they expect a mild recession later in the year, which, of course, they have to say that. I mean, I don't know how mild it would be in reality. They're never going to say expect a severe recession. Uh, But all of these indications, as long as you just don't rely totally on the payroll jobs data, suggest uh, a slowdown. Um, the only qu- the, the the question that remains at large, however, is is this a slowdown that is accompanied by price inflation or not? And I don't know. Yeah. So and, and also there's a the tricky part of that too is suppose so I agree just to let the cat out of the bag, folks. I have been on record for a while now relying primarily on the yield curve, and we'll circle back and talk a bit about that in a minute here. Um, saying I think. When the NBER, the what is that National Bureau of Economic Research? I think that's what that stands for. When eventually they down the road look backwards and say, "When did that recession start?" Because they don't do it in real time; they do it later. I think they will say it started either in the fourth quarter of twenty three or first quarter of twenty four. All right. So to be clear, I'm not saying in December of this year everyone will say, "Oh, we're in a recession," and it's obvious. Like they might not. I mean, I think 
guys like me will be saying that, but it might not be quote official until later because usually they got to wait for the you know there's lags in the data and then they look backwards and and make their declaration. Um, you run yield cover. So what what could happen though is is if let's say that comes true, the Fed could start aggressively cutting rates. You know maybe when they start meeting in October. They they're looking around and they see oh yeah we're definitely slipping into recession let's start cutting rates and then start pumping more money into the market you know maybe home prices are falling off a cliff and things like that so maybe they open up the monetary spigots again so it's it, it it's a bit unfair to say to Ryan or anybody right now it, it what's you know I, I think it's a very fair question to say is a recession coming because I think that's you know sort of baked into the cake at this point but to then say which way our price is going to go it's hard to say because you technically don't know what the Fed's going to do. Right. So they could, you know, if they start flooding the market like they did going into COVID, then, yeah, I think prices are going to go way up. But if they keep doing what they're doing right now, say, no, we really got to snuff this inflation, uh, you know, just get this thing under control, put the genie back in the bottle. So we don't, before we start getting the you know, expectations from the late 70s cycle in motion, then you, you would continue to see this this dampening for sure. Um, so let, let's talk about some of those ryan um the yield curve why don't we go ahead and hit that so again folks um in case you don't know the yield curve is just showing um there's different maturities for treasuries and like to 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 say what's the um the yield on on u.s treasury security well you need to know is it we talk about one month a three month 10 year 30 year and so typically it's what's called upward sloping meaning if you lend money to the government the longer the loan is for the higher the annual rate of return on that. So that's what's considered normal, and that's upward sloping. But an inverted yield curve means when the yields on the shorter duration bonds, um, well, they're called notes or bills, I should say, uh, are higher than on the longer ones. So right now, T-bills are yielding above 5%, which is kind of unusual in recent vintage, whereas longer ones are, are lower than that, right? And so, and as Ryan is saying, there's two things. One is that when that happens, going back at least to, you know, throughout the entire post-war period, if you define your terms properly, every time the yield curve has been inverted with some duration, you know, I mean, like it wasn't just like a blip during, you know, trading one day or something, but like it's been there for a bit. Uh, there has been a recession and every recession has been preceded by an inversion. So there's no false negatives and no false positives. There's a few borderline cases people argue about, but I, I'm confident generally saying that. And Ryan Griggs and I have a paper um, in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics on this stuff that we'll, we'll link to folks to, to flesh this out. Incidentally, what we did there is we looked at um, our version of the, the Salerno uh, Rothbard true money supply, and it, it, it fit very well that you know, g- gross in the – true money supply figure made the yield curve quote look normal or upward sloping and then sharp reductions in the growth of that figure meant you know inverted the yield curve which which totally makes sense in terms of the story of recessions and so last thing i'll just say here sorry <laughs> ryan this has turned into a monologue is w- partly what we did in that was we integrated that empirical regularity of the yield curve inversion predicting a recession with Austrian theory, right? Because it's you, sure this is regularity, but you know there's human action. Can we make sense of that? And it does make sense when you think about it, because normally in the Austrian story we talk about, oh, the central bank floods the market with new cheap money that pushes down the interest rate, and then they they get na- nervous and they tighten and the interest rates rises. But in reality, there's multiple interest rates depending on the duration, and so it's pretty standard to b- agree that. 
the Fed has more control over short-term rates than long-term rates. So when the Fed is pumping money in, that's going to push short rates down. The higher inflation expectations actually might make long rates go up. So an upward sloping yield curve during the boom period. Then when they slam on the brakes, what happens? Short rates zoom up, rising above the longer rates. And in fact, the tightness might even make long rates come down as people build in lower price inflation expectations. And so that and that fits the story nicely. So it makes sense that, oh, yeah, if you already believe in the Austrians theory developed by Mises, you would expect to see the yield curve move the way it does during a boom and then switching over to a bust. So for all those reasons, yeah, the yield curve has been deeply inverted, um, even by historical norms. And so, yeah, to, to me, I think all signs are pointing to a big bust that's coming by the end of this year or start of next year. Yeah. And when I saw that article, it was, of course, by the time I was looking at it, it was like six months old and stuff. So I thought I would just update the graphs on it and stuff. And yeah, it all still holds for the current situation. The uh, If you look at where's uh, the uh, yield curve looking in terms of the gap between the 10-year and the three-year, it's been... Three months. Uh, three months, yes. Thank you. Uh, it's been negative now, so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven months when you're looking at monthly averages. Uh, and that, so that's been plummeting, really, as far as by yield curve standards over that time. And that also happens to be a time when we've seen significant plummeting in the year-over-year measure of uh, the money supply as well. So there's a clear, if you graph it out, there's a clear correlation there between yield curve going negative and money supply uh, either slowing or going downward. Um, and it, now it's not clear from the graph what the direction of causality is. So, you know, we need to look at uh, at your paper, I think, provides a good explanation. Um, but you can see clearly these two things are linked. And it's doing just what um, you had predicted in the paper as well. In fact, when the paper came out, this had not yet happened. But the uh, the three-month is now, in terms of if you look at the graph, it's well above what the 10-year the is when you look at comparing it to earlier periods. Where, yeah, you did have the, the three-month, it, it, it kind of peaked its head above the 10-year the, the here and there for a little bit, for a little while. And that's over the last 50 years you had those those yield curve inversions, but well, it's just deep into that territory now. And you look at mm-hmm. it; it's it's just really it's it's uh, it's 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 well above the ten year now at this point. And it's been there for months. Yeah, and that's also, folks, just to partly I like to talk about this because I think this is an area where the Austrians truly have an edge over the Keynesians. Is so again, it, it's just been empirically known at least since the eighties that this regularity exists in the data that yield curve inversions tend to quote signal an impending recession and then why is that you know economists try to figure that out theoretically ex post and so the keynesians often and and paul krugman literally says and this is in our paper with the one i did with ryan griggs if you folks want to look it up um will say oh it's because the reason that happens the reason that when when a recession is imminent that the three-month yield is higher than the 10-year is because people see that a recession's coming, so they forecast that the Fed's going to cut rates in the future, cut short rates. And so because long rates are you know, an incorporation of all the expected future rates, right? because otherwise there'd be arbitrage opportunities if you thought there was a big mismatch, therefore long rates have to go down. And so in the, in the Krugman story, the reason you would think the yield curve inverts 
as you get near a recession is that the 10 year yield goes below the three month. But when I disaggregate, you know, those two series and don't just look at the, the spread, but look at the one and versus the other and plot them simultaneously or together, you can see, as Ryan just said, that no, what happens is going into the recession, the three month shoots above the 10 year and only as you get closer to the recession, does the 10 year start going down when everyone realizes, oh, yeah, we're hitting a recession. So it's I think it's it clearly shows the Austrian story makes more sense that what's going on is the Fed slams the brakes. That makes the three month shoot up above the 10 year. It's not that everyone also too. there's sort of a weird thing in there saying, oh, the reason we can gain information from the yield curve and we can say, oh, is a recession coming? I don't know. Go check the yield curve because the yield curve will invert if everybody knows a recession's coming, right? Like it seems kind of a weird circular argument, whereas this one makes more sense that like they're saying, no, the, according to the Austrian theory of the Fed pumping in money or sucking it out or refraining from pumping in as much, that that kind of explains how interest rates whipsaw around and, and give people different signals. And one thing I want to emphasize, too, is that it's not necessary for the money supply to actually shrink in order to set into motion a bust period. Uh, it certainly doesn't have to go negative uh, in terms of negative growth. And, but just a slowing, just a plateauing in new credit creation, and this is explained by Mises just forever ago, was that the longer you get this boom period going on, which is re- becomes heavily reliant on constant new infusions of credit – that once you just stop putting in new credit, even if you just held the line for a while, you, you're then getting into trouble and, and putting into place this, the, uh, the variables necessary to, to start a bus. So uh, it's, you don't have to see the money supply go down or disappear or shrink or any of that. It just has to slow. It just has to stop putting into the economy massive new infusions of credit. Yeah. So, again, great clarification there, folks, as Ryan's saying. We're not saying if the money supply shrinks, then – or a recession occurs when the money supply shrinks. We're just saying it could be a slowdown in the rate of growth. But all the more so, if it's literally shrinking, well, that's a real slowdown in the growth that actually went negative. And so that's why this is particularly worrisome uh, to the extent that you think any of these indicators um, forebode things for the future. Okay, well, with that uh, optimistic note, why don't we, we stop? So, folks, my guest this week has been Ryan McMakin. Ryan, thanks for your time. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We will see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org. Mises.org.